0: Welcome to the second episode of Humanities Plus. I am your host, Rachel Scray, and I am an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm a double major in history and digital and public humanities with a minor in arts management with an emphasis of museums and galleries. If you're wondering what digital and public humanities is, after this episode, you may want to check out our first episode about digital and public humanities with guest Dr. Chuck Raybeck. Humanities Plus is a digital and public humanities podcast that is here to provide undergraduate students and community members with meaningful discussions with enthusiasts, scholars, and experts on the intricate field of digital and public humanities in order to expand our listeners' thinking and perspective on the subject. The topic of today's episode is Herstory and the Digital Humanities Women of Today. Here to discuss this with us is Dr. Caroline Boswell and Dr. Rebecca Nesvet. Thank you both for being here today on our second episode. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> So this episode is in celebration of Women's History Month. Today we'll be conversing about the vital role of women in history as well as a later discussion about the work, projects, and experiences of female scholars in the DH field today. To kick off this episode, I would like to know about what female figures or women in history have inspired you in your life. Dr. Nesvet, would you like to start?
1: Yes, thank you. Well, I study uh, 19th century British literature um, so one of the, the many women from that era whom I think um, was incredibly inspiring is Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley, um, the, uh, the author of Frankenstein. And what's, what's inspiring, I think, is you kind of have different heroes at different times in your life, depending on what's going on personally and culturally. And Um, So right now, what I find inspiring about her is her adaptability. Um, There's a belief that she wrote one novel, Frankenstein, as a teenager. It was a hit, and she was done. In reality, she was a lifetime working writer, scholar, editor, and copyist who needed paid work to survive and to raise her child at a time when universities did not admit women, and her society more or less blamed her for working and for needing to work. Um, Her commissions included several novels with advances, but also a series of biographical articles for Lardner's Cabinet Encyclopedia, which was an encyclopedia edited by Dionysius Lardner, a scientist who was incredibly influential in the public science movement. And she also hand-copied Byron's terrible scribbly drafts for his publisher. So she was essentially a a transcriptionist or or a secretary. And I think it's important that we admit that, because geniuses often need subsistence work too. And a lot of us, um, women in particular, I think, have to go through our CVs and say, uh, how do I make a linear narrative out of this? I mean, especially now when in the gig economy, many of us don't have a linear narrative. I don't think having a linear CV is an achievement. Being able to accomplish what you want to accomplish in the world and survive in, in, in a society that makes that fairly difficult is, and, um, and she achieved that.
0: So she didn't just write Frankenstein. Oh, no, what my goodness, no.
1: She wrote some several other novels. So I really like, I would recommend Valperga, which takes place in the Middle Ages and involves a young woman who is the daughter of two nuns. I'm, I'm not, that's correct. A um, young woman who is the daughter of two nuns and who believes that she is the savior sent to rescue the female half of society. And, of course, things go very wrong because it's the Middle Ages in Italy. And... Um, uh, so there's that one. There's *The Last Man*, which is terribly depressing, but also uh, one of the first major science fiction novels um, about a secular end of the world. Um, so the the title character is, believes that he's the last person on Earth after a terrible plague, and he's got a dog and a copy of Shakespeare and is is writing his story. And um, it's 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 really scary, but also interesting. So she wrote those. Um, I think also like her life, uh, you know, particularly the part of her life where she was a single working parent. Um, you know, if you look at, at, at her productivity in that era, it demonstrates that women with children are much more productive when childcare is available.
0: All right, uh, Professor Boswell, what female figures or women in history have inspired you in your life?
2: Okay, so I'm a 17th-century British historian who studies the social history of politics. That is how politics, broadly defined, intersects with uh, kind of the politics of everyday life. And so I find it hard to isolate a figure, as I think that the question suggests that individuals have a large degree of personal agency to shape their world. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated and inspired by women who navigate hegemonic structures and culture that uphold their subordination. And my current research project examines if and how the politics of the English Revolution influenced how women could navigate interpersonal conflicts within their communities. So, um, And this is difficult, and because I've had conversations with uh, fellow historians about what that looks like and what that means. Because one could argue that a woman who claimed a male adversary was a worse cuckold than the infamous parliamentarian general, the Earl of Essex, is merely upholding oppressive and normative gender relations to undermine his credibility. Yet, um, because I wish to see real change in the world, I choose to move beyond the kind of binaries of either resistance or collusion that so often ignore significant forms of politics practiced by women and other subordinate peoples.
0: The women from history that I've chosen to discuss today are heavily influenced by the time spent with my grandma when I was younger. My grandmother couldn't stand watching Spongebob all the time, so she'd like to switch it up and put in films like Roman Holiday, The Wizard of Oz, My Fair Lady, and Meet Me in St. Louis. From those titles, you can probably guess the two that I would talk about, Um, Audrey Hepburn and Judy Garland. As a child, these women encapsulated my attention by their on-screen performances, but as I grew older, I became really intrigued with their off-camera lives and began to fully realize how inspirational and powerful these women were and still are. Audrey Hepburn is most noted for her famous role in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but to me, she's most notable for her experience as a child of war and her life as a humanitarian. During World War II, her family lived in Amsterdam, where they thought they would be safe, but instead, it was occupied by German forces. Ms. Hepburn spent most of her time as a kid dancing in order to raise money for the Dutch resistance, and after her successful movie-making career, she devoted her life to being an ambassador for UNICEF. She used her platform and fame as a way to bring awareness to the plight of children in unfortunate situations. My grandmother's favorite actress and singer was Judy Garland. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count how many times we watched The Wizard of Oz or listened to a recording from Carnegie Hall. Uh, Similar to Hepburn, Frances Ethel Gum, which is Judy Garland's birth name, did not have an easy life growing up, except instead of living in a war zone, her struggles came from a mother's desire to make her children famous. It's commonly said that Judy was a victim of a stage mother. At the age of 13, she was signed with MGM, and by the age of 16, she was cast as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. It has been said that their mother gave her amphetamines to give her energy and sleeping pills to counteract it, as well as exhausting fitness routines in order to give her a proper shape uh, for a woman of the spotlight. Garland is also referred to as a gay icon. Scholar Brian Currid wrote a journal article titled Judy Garland's American Drag and in this he argues that her role in A Star is Born was pivotal for her. Quote, Judy Garland is as obviously American as she is as obviously a gay icon. The saying, are you a friend of Dorothy, was a secret code used to help closeted people identify each other. My good friend Jacob uh, was the one who exposed me to this part of her history and I had no idea about this um, until about two years ago. And then I got really interested in it and there's actually quite a few scholarly articles that talk about her role as a gay icon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's particularly true after the the Stonewall riot, mm-hmm. you know, which was the beginning of the um, the LGBT rights movement mm-hmm. in in this country, and that uh, that transpired in part because people were at the Stonewall Inn in Grange Village in New York, which was which was a a, a gay um, you know inclusive gay bar. Um, and they they were mourning the death of, of mm-hmm. Julie Gar- Garland, which had, had just um, been, in, you know, been announced. And that turned into, um, you know, being attacked by the police and, and fighting back and, and finding that it was, you know, necessary to keep fighting. So I, I guess she never found out what kind of role she had. You know, mm-hmm. the, that era was called, you know, the Stonewall era. Um, but she did have quite an important role because of that.
0: I'm really glad that you mentioned that that's I was just going to oh, talk sorry. about that as well. That no, that's me. fine. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I there's a quote because um, I watched mm-hmm. the Stonewall Riots 40th anniversary mm-hmm. and they talk about um, how mm-hmm. her death really helped um, like the mourning over her death mm-hmm. really helped push all of the um, grievances and the mm-hmm. anger that they were feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also read that you know there's some historians that think that this correlation isn't true. Um but I just think like regardless of that debate, um, Judy Garland's life and her memory mm-hmm. really inspired people, especially those who had been mistreated and marginalized mm-hmm. by society. And I was watching this interview with her, and the interviewer had asked, uh, so, because there was a, a article that was written about how a lot of her uh, fan base, were gay and it was almost it was it was a shaming article. It wasn't nice. It didn't. It just was not an okay uh, article in today's standards or then either. Mm-hmm. Um, but they he addressed that while she was in this mm-hmm. interview and she basically said like anyone can pick on me and tear me down in the spotlight Mm -hmm. if they want but there is absolutely no way that I will stand for my fans to be shamed the way that I am constantly shamed and Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was a really um moving remark that she had made at that time and she like basically just shut the question down and was like we're not talking about this anymore
1: that's wonderful Mm -hmm. that's really wonderful of her
0: Uh, Well, thank you both for sharing your inspirations from history. So let's dig into the conversation of female scholars of digital humanities today. I have a few questions to get us started. Dr. Boswell, what sort of challenges do female scholars face when working in digital humanities field and I guess academia at large?
2: that's a gigantic question Um, so first thing i should say is like i'm not a dh scholar um and so i'm kind of an outsider answering this question um but i'm really interested in the question um particularly as it relates to the academy at large even though i do think that digital humanities has its own kind of issues and quirks um so i mean when i when i hear this question i'm first reminded of this controversy from the american historical association conference this year um, arguably, that's the largest history conference in the United States, and in a panel on academic blogging, a white male audience member referenced uh, Jackie Antonovich, the executive director of the blog Nursing Clio, as a little redhead girl. And immediately, I mean, people luckily on the panel were responsive to that, um, as were people in the audience. Um, and I learned about it. I was not present. I learned about it via Twitter which was, as you might imagine, like, a light with outrage as a result of this, but I wasn't really necessarily surprised by it as as much as, you know, it did kind of outrage me as well. Um, You know, last year there was the notorious conference at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, in which I believe all but one speaker was a white man. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's always fascinating to me when, you know, people seem surprised by this. I mean, it's unfortunate that in 2019 we still have to talk about it. Um, but also one of the things that's troubling to me is the kind of rhetoric of excuse around it, which is, you know, potentially women didn't apply to conferences such as the one at Stanford or and or declined, uh, appearing um, as if like access equals inclusion. And I think that's more or less what, you know, the, the folks who were outraged with what was going on at the AHA were, were referencing, right? So, um And other women who participate in DH projects, so women who uh, write the Lady Science blog, as a result of this experience, um, on behalf of their colleague, uh, declared that they were not going to attend conferences in 2019. And I think what they're trying to get at is that, you know, us being there us being present is first of all um, it takes a lot of kind of emotional labor for us to mentally prepare for what is potentially going to be problematic responses to our engagement in this field Um, and then ultimately they didn't find it effective right so they didn't necessarily see themselves as moving any kind of needle but rather they're kind of taking on Um, this emotional labor to what result and so their absence is actually really important because what it's suggesting of course is that access and you know presence doesn't equal inclusion uh, and that there's this much larger kind of context in which we all have to think about why it is that potentially women uh, do not want to engage in certain roles or in certain fields or or really struggle to do so so this idea that it's the fault of women for not applying i mean right away it, it. You know what? Their choice of not going to conferences turns us on its head because, of course, they could go and they would be accepted. uh, But acceptance doesn't equal inclusion, uh, nor does it equal respect for their expertise and the work that they engage in. Um, And so, I think that that's you know, like I said, DH has its own issues, particularly as it relates to things such as technology and whether or not women have the capacity to. code or whatever you want to talk about but this is just a larger endemic problem within the academy that's kind of um you know it's potentially particularly rife in this situation um thinking about women in dh but i mean i've experienced it as a british historian particularly one who studies politics Mm -hmm. um i certainly have experienced it myself yeah and actually i'll I'll just have one other story that i have it reminds like this conversation also reminded me of a dinner conversation that i had at um our national conference the north american conference on british studies that's what Mm -hmm. it's called i think yeah um where uh a colleague of mine was going to create a uh women's consortium within the, the, the organization because, frankly, women weren't winning awards at the same rate. Right. Uh, there's just kind of a general sense that there's still work to be done. And uh, one of our male colleagues kind of asked her, well, what do we need a caucus for, a women's caucus for? It looks like women are well represented in the list of you know panelists or potentially even in the organizing committee. Again, that equation of access equals inclusion, equals respect and understanding of experience. Um, it was I found that really interesting dinner conversation. Mm, that is interesting.
0: I think that that's a really, um, like what you're saying, like access equals inclusion. It's it's a pretty dangerous thought to have. And I think it's pretty easy. You know, it's 2019, and I feel like that's an excuse people use all the time. It's 2019, these problems aren't real anymore. Uh, and that's just not true at all. Um, and the situation that you were talking about with lady science and how they, they wrote a blog piece about it that, it, that exposed um, what had happened at this conference. And not to say that like writing that one piece fixes the problem, it doesn't at all, but it brings it to a, like, a larger audience to like, really show that this is still a problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, I read yeah. in part that blog, I'm curious what you all think, it's like a, a rejection of tokenism, right? They're like, mm-hmm. we're tokens on this, in these conferences. Um, you know, they want us present so that the conferences look inclusive, but ultimately.
1: Mm. So that they can say there's not a problem. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think like there, there is a, um, an expression for this thing. It's, it's called curating who gets to sit at the table.
0: So, uh, Dr. Nesbitt, as mm-hmm. we are aware, there are definitely structures that surround the academic field of digital humanities that impede uh, the way in which women scholars connect to digital humanities. Uh, what, what are some of these structures that impede women from connecting to digital humanities, and uh, in what ways uh, okay. are women addressing these challenges? Okay,
1: there are so many different things I could talk about, so I'm going to try to limit it to the ones that I know best. So one of the things that I know pretty well is um, the academic job market. Digital humanities is part of higher education, and we know that statistically, there are fewer women in jobs that um, have reasonable benefits and a decent quality of life and some kind of of stability in academia than men, and there are way few minorities, period, and minority women, in particular, um, at all those ranks. So, I mean, I definitely remember um, people in grad school who I think are way more talented and accomplished than me that for various structural reasons can go on a national job search and they range from things like um, you know uh, in, in a relationship with a man who's a little bit older and and had in, in his career and you know why should um, I uproot him to go pursue uh, my thing there's there's quite a lot of that um, that, that some people had to deal with. Um, there are universities where the faith statements preclude um, women in relationships with other women from even applying. Um, so that, you know, when you've got eight jobs in your field, uh, you know, if that's one of them, that's actually a pretty big um, component of the field. So stuff like that, um, you know, can, can make it difficult for women with, within the higher education industry um, to even get a foothold. There are all sorts of codes about, this industry that make it difficult for people who are first-generation participants in higher education um, to get ahead of those who are fourth or fifth or sixth generation. Um, participants. Um, I think, uh, you know, also within, uh, you know, the, the digital part of the digital humanities, it's worth paying attention to Moya Z. Bailey's piece, all the digital humanists are white, all the nerds are men, um, but some of us are brave. I think it's, it's maybe a little bit less true that all the nerds are men, but the nerds that are not men have to kind of make their nerdiness look like the kind of nerdiness that has historically been, been ascribed to men, um, and that can be difficult. Um, I remember watching um, a world-famous expert male on, um, and on a part of Digital Humanities uh, give a PowerPoint presentation in which he put mustaches on pictures of famous women in order to demonstrate a point about, um, uh, about stylometrics, and it, it really wasn't either funny or relevant. Um, But that kind of thing is still acceptable, even though like half of the people in the class he was giving that talk to um, were women. I also think that, I mean, this is the socialist feminist point that you can't really solve gender inequity without trying to solve economic um, inequity. And we uh, we have a lot of economic inequity that I think it's making a bigger gap between the well-funded, research-based digital humanities programs and everyone else, which is silly because it's actually the everyone else that is teaching the new generation, of um, women and and men to code. So um, so I'm going to just to demonstrate this. Uh, To read um, something, uh, there's a rant online by an international DH expert a couple of weeks ago, Um, someone who makes a point of explaining that they're on the National Committee to award lots of D.H. Grants. And this person wrote, the perception that you don't have time to code because someone with money, that is a grant foundation, is pointing a gun with a bullet named Deadline at you is exactly the problem. Um, she said, well, you know, you, you have time to code. Just figure it out and do it, and then you can, you can be more autonomous in your work um, as a researcher. And someone who was a librarian uh, told her it would take 160 hours for a novice coder to complete the project she described as an example, and she replied, I quote, this comes down to what work we need to be doing for ourselves and what time we need to take to do it. I needed to build additions and organize information more effectively to do research I care about, and so I took the time to learn. It was much longer than a few hours. I'm still learning, but it was not a burden. It was joy, and what I needed to start amounted to a semester course that my undergrads now take. I realize I have some scope to define what I want to do for myself as a university professor with as stable a position as I can have, and I guess that's kind of my point. Those us in positions to think about our work can be helping expand horizons um, instead of delimiting them. And a lot of that is true at the same time. Uh, time, you know, time is a very valuable commodity. And some institutions have the ability to afford lots of time for things like this. And they also have stuff like you know, child care center and uh, money for student assistance and that sort of thing. And others don't. And um, I think we're making the gap wider by entertaining perspectives like that.
2: Yeah, I really like what you're like the the point about the kind of mm-hmm. economic justice too. I mean, I'm, my my limited experience in the DH world, which is often kind of attending, you know, these week long classes at DHSI mm-hmm. or potentially going to conferences. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is this real sense of inequity that nobody seems to want to talk about. When it comes to the accesses at your institution, I mean, I've been in courses where they kind of say, "Well, if you need to do this, go and contact your DH librarian," and I'm like laughing out loud. I mean, we like, used to
1: have one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we,
2: you know, it, it, not every place has a yeah. DH librarian who's going to quote unquote solve the problem for you. Um, and not not that I'm not I'm saying that everyone mm-hmm. should, but you know, the way in which we kind of describe the work uh, should be thoughtful of of kind of various people who are engaged in it. And I don't often see that. I mean, often at these places too, there's a sense that you're going there to develop, to potentially mm-hmm. develop your own scholarship and or to get a job if you're a graduate student. And look, there, there's some issues there that I, are real and I'm not trying to undermine mm-hmm. or to suggest that it's wrong for graduate students to kind of explore ways in which they can find positions. But there's those of us who are there also, because we're interested in engaging undergraduate mm-hmm. students, and and often that again is just not particularly well pronounced at these moments. Like it's just the, largely the people who are there at R1 institutions, whether mm-hmm. as graduate students or as researchers, and therefore that's the audience. Um, and there's not a lot of explicit discussion of how not everyone is necessarily a part of that community, nor yeah. wants to be. It's not as if like we, we've we've failed, and therefore we're kind of there. Um, you know, tugging our forelock at the people who are offering these courses—it's—it's it's much more that that's—that's that's where our passion lies, and ultimately, we just want that passion respected.
1: I, I agree with that. I mean, I—I I loved DHSI. I learned so much that I have been applying year after year from it. And I remember the point where there are four or five steps in a process, and one of the teachers said. Um, who does teach in a major research institution, said that, you know, so you do X and Y and Z, and then you, quote, unquote, run down the hall to the graphic designer. And I'm like, well, that, I'm not going to have that step. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. And just to be clear, I also <laughs> love DHSI, and I would never, yeah. you know, I was, I'm so grateful that I've had the opportunity mm-hmm. to go. These are just kind of minor things that I think other people have raised, especially via Twitter, yeah. uh, but worth referencing again.
1: hmm I love DHSI too. Yeah, I know. So, that's and like actually there DHSI. there there was one um, I think it was a lunchtime talk or something conversation at DHSI specifically about class and inclusivity in DH. So they're they're working on it. For so, sure. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Are there any uh, I guess like any like big takeaways that you would want uh, people to get from this episode? Uh, when it comes to women experiences or women projects in DH, uh, things like that? I just
1: want to add that I think some of the most exciting things that are happening in DH right now are not only being produced by women, but are being produced by women with incredibly difficult resourcing circumstances. That does not mean that we should aim for difficult circumstances because they create grit or something silly like that, but... um, (laughs) But I just, I want to point out things like Marie Léger Saint-Jean's um, Price One Penny um, Cheap Literature Archive, which is an indispensable bibliography that she created. Um, it, I believe it's, it started like 2002 or so, so when digital, digital humanities was, was much less of a field. Um, that is now, she did it as a graduate work um, at the University of Cambridge and she has kept it running um, basically by herself as a private individual she um, no longer works in academia but she continues to be a, a DH um, maker and, and researcher while having like a completely separate other job um, in, in the humanities this is in, in a, um, you know the, the digital humanities but outside in, in the industry world. Um, this is what I, I mean like just to bring it back to Mary Shelley about lives that um, do not, look like the typical, uh, frankly, male linear career narrative of a generation ago, but it's actually these incredibly resourceful people who are making things that the the better funded academics at the, the research institutions literally couldn't do their own work without. So that's happening.
0: Do you have anything you'd like to add? Would
2: well, I think, me? you know, I'm really interested in this question <laughs> that I originally talked about. What Where is the room between, like, um, resistance and then collusion, right? <laughs> so, you know, potentially in my comments about DHSI, I suggested that people are kind of, coll- you know, colluding. Um, and I don't necessarily want to make it kind of a, you know, I don't want to adopt the binary that I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to attack at the same time. Uh, but I think it's really difficult, right? I mean, people have to operate their people, you know, they have to have positions, um, they have to feed their families and themselves. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we have to think about uh, how, how potentially are, is the way in which we're navigating these structures also kind of confirming um, the structures that ultimately make it so that certain people uh, are able to kind of receive privilege in a way that others aren't, right, me included. Uh, and I think that's a really difficult question and conversation. And um, I think one of the things I like about DH is, so I'm a historian, um, and uh, what it does is it potentially brings more a more critical edge Um to the way in which we engage as scholars versus just what we engage with as scholarship. And maybe that's also because I'm a British historian of the 17th century that I'm coming out a very specific, uh, I guess I could say, framework. A colleague of mine once laughed and said, could I do anything less? Critically progressive, uh, and then study 17th century British history. I laughed; it was funny. It was funny to me. Um,
1: I, I think the uh, the attempt at the republic was incredibly progressive. So yeah,
2: no, I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. You know, it's it's more of kind of a you know a stereotype um, that yeah. that I'm used to hearing. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I I mean I think it's a really interesting question, right? And that's why part of the reason I, I really like celebrating individuals who have um, you know potentially created real change, but ultimately, I also think that if those are the kind of people we put on a pedestal, then most people will think, well, I'm not that person, and therefore I don't have any kind of obligation, um, because I'm not going to go into full resistance mode. Uh, I'm going to either just not think about my collusion or accept my position as um, someone who is colluding, and I think that there's a lot of kind of in-between there, and and to, to figure out where we are on that kind of spectrum is important without necessarily saying that one is good and one is bad. I think it's difficult, higher education in particular. Right now, we're we're grappling in a world in which higher education is increasingly neoliberal. Um, and our desire to support students, which I think is really important, um, suggests that we here can kind of control and contain systemic inequities that exist external to the institution. Um, and that's not necessarily true. So are we colluding when, for example, we're working really hard to ensure students when they get here um, have the capacity to succeed if they are first generation, if they potentially lack the resources um, that you know, our majority students do? Well, no, we're not colluding. But at the same time, if that's all we're doing, uh, and we're not thinking about the structures that create these kind of inequities. Then, then potentially we are. I'm, I'm not really sure the answer to that, right? Um, uh, but I think that it, it all it all relates, even if it seems a little disconnected for women in DH. It's all part of larger cultural and systemic structures that result in these kind of inequities that we all face.
1: Yeah, and I think you know just about the language. Um, there's so much that we need to do for first generation um, college students. At the same time, first generation is not. A, a synonym um, for impoverished. And we have a huge problem in this country with student poverty and with student food security. And they're not, you know, and we need to, sometimes I'm, I think that we use first generation so that we don't admit that we have a poverty problem. Oh, well, that's interesting.
0: So I guess in general um Mm -hmm. talking about some of the digital scholarship that women um have created and publicly shared uh with uh topics that address uh women in gender studies, um, women in science, women in history. So there's uh, some podcasts that I really enjoy listening to. Um, Dig History would be one of them. Thank you, Kate Farley, for showing me Dig History. Uh, Lady Science is another one, and The History Chicks. Um, Dig History and Lady Science, I know, are a group of... um, female academics. Most of them, I believe, have PhDs. Uh, they are professors at uh, various different institutions, and they their podcast, well, specifically for Dig Podcast, they provide the public with uh, really, really researched history. Um, you can listen to one of their episodes and then go on to their website, and they have all of their sources there for you to check it and um, they talk about subjects of um, gender, American history, queer history. Uh, it's all really extremely interesting. And um, Dig also was awarded the American Association for State and Local History in 2012, which is cool. And then Lady Science, uh, I've really enjoyed there. I just listened to one of their um, episodes about uh, weird things that um, doctors and scientists have said about women's bodies. That is a pretty uh, interesting episode there. Um, and the History Chicks, which are amateur, I guess you could say amateur historians, they, um, they're not professors, uh, they don't uh, teach history or anything like that, um, but they have also won a few awards. Um, history Chicks did a two-part episode on um, Audrey Hepburn, if uh, any of the listeners want to learn more about Audrey Hepburn, they did one on her, and they did one on the women of the Wizard of Oz, that one was really good as well. Um, So moving, uh, oh, and another thing about Lady Science is that it's not just a podcast, they're a um, magazine, they're an independent magazine, and I think that that is really um, quite cool. Moving past podcasts, you have digital humanists like Lauren Klein and Catherine Dignazio are co-writing a book that is accessible online called Data Feminism. Uh, for a while, they had it up there where the viewers could comment and make edits, and they would take all of the feedback and go in and, and change it. And I just think that was a really cool way to make sure that what they're writing is accessible to everyone on all platforms, and the knowledge and the information that they're giving is also Uh, accessible. I read a few chapters of the book. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but it's really interesting, and there is this one quote that I'll read that when I read it, it really just gave me chills that intersectional feminism isn't just about women nor is it just about gender. Feminism is about power. Who has it and who doesn't. And in a world in which data is power and that power is wielded unequally, data feminism can help us understand how it can be challenged and changed. And I just thought that that was a really cool way to put that. Like I've never thought about how powerful data really is in our 21st century world and how feminism and data can coincide with each other and that women who do uh, use data, who program, who work in digital humanities, all of those different sorts of things, it's a, it's a different power in a way for us to have voices on on vast platforms, and I just think that's really awesome.
1: I think that's awesome, and I think that's true now. I think we also have to be aware that historically, once women get into any kind of profession, and it doesn't matter what the profession is, how much education you need to do it, how difficult it is to do it, or how much society needs it, um, then that starts being economically and socially um, devalued. We have seen that with, with like, there actually was a point where, mo- where a secretary implicitly was a man, um, and that that was a very trusted position. We have seen that with healthcare. We've seen that with education. Um, I think we are actually starting to see that with DH. I've definitely gotten some reactions from male colleagues not at this institution about, oh, you do all that that computer stuff. Um, Well, I don't know how to do that, but that's because I'm spending my time on the real research in the archives. And so I think we have to be very careful to try to protect our field from the, from the the kind of disrespect and under and defunding that that often comes with feminization.
2: Yeah, and I, I think mm-hmm. to go along with it too. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the kind of the conversations mm-hmm. we've had today, but l- largely we're we're suggesting, or at least it's kind of mm-hmm. almost implied that DH uh, mm-hmm. scholars who are women have to study women, and that's like a consistent. No, that's issue. not true. Yeah, of course yeah. it's not good, true. Yeah. Um, but but mm-hmm. I, I do think there's a sense yeah. that um, there's a prevailing sense at times that you are (laughs) that there's this kind of um, identification with the self that you might not even have that other people place on you so in other words like you know if you're the woman in the department you teach the women's Mm -hmm. history courses um there that that exists um Um, One of the people who I I think is really inspiring, and this kind of goes back to when I first got interested in the field, not because I, again, I'm not a practitioner, but I'm really interested in engaging in the field because our students here at UW-Green Bay are, and therefore I find it um, my responsibility to become uh, aware of the field, to understand it, and then to potentially... learn it with students. Um, So as I originally went about doing that kind of research, I ran across Sharon Howard, who was one of the major contributors to the Old Bailey Proceedings Online as well as Mm -hmm. um, London Lives Project. Uh, I find her work to be uh, really inspiring, particularly because she not only is engaging as a researcher and um, a contributor to digital uh, humanities projects, particularly on the coding side, Um, but also she spends time aggregating other projects so that people can find them. And this is, I do see as kind of an issue in the field is as more people are attempting to kind of bring, uh, for example, primary sources from the early modern period uh, to the rest of us across the globe, um, there is no system of aggregation, right? So you kind of have to find them on your own. Uh, And of course, that's another resource issue who has the time and capacity to do that. And so uh, I really like her model for engaging in this work. She has asked questions around gender, um, though if I'm remembering correctly, that's not her only approach to history. She's kind of interested in uh, social history generally, which, of course, gender plays a major role in that. But it's not the only question that she explores or category she explores.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that happens in my field, too, that... um, there, there I do 19th century British literature there is an implicit belief that every woman who does 19th century British literature is a, is a a huge fan of Jane Austen and B I found this out personally this year knows where to get the costumes from <laughs> So I was asked to do some public some public uh, humanities work around Jane Austen I'm like okay well that I guess that's good because people are reading Jane Austen where can we get some costumes? I have no idea sorry <laughs> you know. There's yeah, one. if you if you want to know where to get, like, Oscar Wilde's really cool Toreador <laughs> shoes, I can figure that out if we want to do a drag, you know, drag king Oscar Wilde. But I can't help you with the Austin dresses. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, can, I can tell you where I believe um, Oliver Cromwell's skull is. Ooh, That's where? Really well, it's in a specific house in Ely. I can't yeah. remember what it's called. But okay. there was one thing that I, I was going to talk about that I didn't squeeze in. I went to the Attending to Early Modern Women conference this past uh, summer. Um, and I, I find that entire group really inspiring. So first of all, the theme for the conference this past summer was action and agency, which they, the people who kind of run the conference had, at least some of them, uh, come up with, I believe, um, on the airplane ride to the Women's March in, in Washington, DC. Uh, and so honestly, they came up with a theme for the year even before the Me Too movement began. But then once that movement began, it became all the, from their perspective and and from mine, all the more pressing. Um, And one of the things really fascinating about this group is that they organized this uh, conference, which is an interdisciplinary conference on early modern women and gender studies Mm -hmm. in the 1990s. Um, And while I don't know precisely the reasons why, I think we can all guess why they, they potentially wanted to have their own conference. And one of the things that is really interesting about it is the actual design, which I think is reflective in how potentially women approach things differently or i should say maybe potentially people who are outside of kind of the dominant um, group potentially think about learning differently so for example there are a series of plenaries but they're all grouped together so there's no kind of celebration of the individual you're always kind of in a plenary with other people Um, and then the conference sessions themselves are actually people proposing kind of questions um that they want to explore through the sources that they in, engage with. Uh, and so when you go to a session, you actually have to read a series of probably secondary as well as primary literature in advance. And then you're having a conversation around questions. and mm-hmm. so everyone is kind of equal contributor to the conversation. So I find that really, really interesting. And again, this this conference was founded in the 1990s. They always had a pedagogy panel. So all the way back then when really, I mean, to this day, like, you know, a lot of conferences, pedagogical panels might be kind of, you know, 5%, 10% of these really major conferences. There it was always a part of it. Uh, and now it's also including um, digital projects. So, for example, um, at least one member, uh, one of the editors of the DIG podcast was there and spoke, and that's actually where I learned about the podcast um, myself. So I, I really like this kind of counter model. Um, but, of course, well, one of the other things that's really interesting about being at that conference is that, I mean, I didn't count, but I would say it was 90% women. Again, as if only women can study women and gender history, which, of course, is not necessarily the case. But but why is that, right?
1: Yeah, I really like the, the, the Midwest Conference on British Studies, so the regional yeah, version I do of... Um, of our you know, national conference that, that you've mentioned that I have noticed um, that there is more diversity there than there is, um, including international diversity, by the way, both people working internationally and international st- graduate students studying in the US. Um, there's more gender diversity, there's more women keynote speakers. I can't remember a panel where, you know, or, or at least a large group of panels where everybody was um, was a man, and most importantly there are panels on things like there's always a pedagogy round table, there's always a questions about publishing, grad students please come ask them um, events. So I think like this one actually thinks about the inclusivity uh, issues and, and the economic you know, issues around um, working in, in the humanities and consequently it attracts a more inclusive group of people who who I consider like some of my best global colleagues
0: so throughout history women have been marginalized oppressed and treated vastly different than their male counterparts While there are still examples and instances of sexism today, uh, women, in a sense, are fighting back and taking the conversation to wider platforms. Um, Digital humanities is a tool that female scholars are using to explore history, gender, feminism, along with a vast majority of other subjects. Sexism in politics, academia, and life may never fully disappear, but the work that is being done by scholars and female scholars scholars, activists, and feminists help bring these conversations to a more public level. The conversation that we had today uh, is a very important one, and by no means does it fix all of the problems that we discussed, but it is just like a 0.01 percent. 45 minutes, that makes a little bit of a difference. And I thank you both for being here today. Thank you. you. Humanities Plus was produced by Kate Farley and edited by our Phoenix Studios intern Preston Fisher. And a special shout out and thank you to Eric Chambers for the great music. For more great content like the episode you just heard, check out our Phoenix Studios website at www.uwgb.edu podcast. Don't forget to tune in next time for our next show that focuses on the student perspective of digital and public humanities.